Danielle. It's so good to talk to you today. Hey, Kara. So today I'm talking with uh, D.L. Mayfield, um, and we're going to talk about her, her new book that's coming out. So, Danielle, why don't you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, so this is my first book, and it's called Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith. And it's the story of how I grew up wanting to be a missionary and ended up living and working um, within a refugee community in Portland, Oregon, and kind of the faith shift I underwent as they opened my eyes to some different world in America. So let me ask you this. In the beginning of the book, you talk a lot about um, wanting to be a missionary and training toward that goal. Would you call yourself a missionary today? And how has that word changed for you? Yeah, I I would not use that word to describe myself um, because that word has such a history of um, – colonialism about it and um, just a lot of emotional baggage and you know authors don't always get to pick their subtitles and and that was kind of a capitulation I had to make (laughs) but I think the word missionary does accurately accurately describe who I wanted to be um, growing up so I grew up um, in a conservative Christian family I was homeschooled my dad was and is to this day a pastor um, and there's so many good things about my upbringing, um, and I was really obsessed with reading missionary biographies. And now, in retrospect, sometimes I wonder if it isn't because a lot of them were about women. <laughs> and so, you know, back in the day, if you were a strong woman with leadership um, qualities, the only place you could go was overseas. Um, you weren't allowed to lead, you know, in the American church. So you know, maybe it was just my feminist tendencies that led me to those books, but. I also just had a strong sense that I wanted to be involved in whatever God was up to in the world. Um, And so being a missionary seemed like a great way to do that. Um, You know, nowadays, I kind of what I read about in the book is just when I when I met the Somali Bantu refugees in Portland, Oregon, I not only was I kind of learning about Somali Bantu culture and refugee culture and East African culture, but I was also learning about um, poverty culture in America. And um, so now I kind of view my life as I want to be a learner in these communities at the margins of America. And um, and I guess with my writing, I'd like to just sort of be a witness to what I'm experiencing. But um yeah, my life is much more about I need to I want to be reconciled um with my neighbors. And so I'm trying to live a life in the direction of reconciliation, but um yeah. So your book comes at kind of a crucial national moment. How have your experiences with refugees shaped your approach to political conversations about refugees? Yeah, honestly, it's it's pretty hard for me to even listen to a lot of the political rhetoric being thrown around about refugees just because it's such a personal um, connection to me. But, yeah, I think one of the things that is is a little bit hard for me is that um, the, the amount of time and bureaucracy and 
everything it takes for a refugee to actually come to America is kind of mind-boggling. Um, many, many refugees just spend, first of all, they go through unimaginable trauma, and then they are forced to leave their home, and then they spend, you know, years and even decades just languishing in refugee camps and conditions that we couldn't even imagine. And then a very, very, very small few get resettled in America. Um, usually they're the ones that have experienced, like, the most trauma or they have they grew up in the most severe poverty. And so actually they're, they're pretty under-resourced for what it's like to make it in America, but they're only given, um, you know, eight months of assistance and then they're supposed to be completely able to uh, function in America and without needing any extra help. So it's they're just put in such a terrible position in so many ways. Um, and it's hard to even hear people say, like, we shouldn't even take any more in um, because of what could happen to us. And part of me is like, we need to accept more, but we also need to do a better job of taking care of those who are already here. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, it's a little bit of a, a two-pronged issue, but yeah, I mean, just living in apartment complexes where refugees get resettled has absolutely changed my life, and the hospitality they have shown me and my family is just, it's just an absolute blessing, Um, so I thought I was going to go hang out with them and convert them and make their lives better, but um, they've, they've made my life better and richer and yeah, they're just they're just a blessing to me, and that's kind of my view on refugees. <laughs> so I have a feeling that leads me into my my next question: that your book will inspire many people to find practical ways to aid and be involved with refugees. Um, would you offer some suggestions for getting started? Yeah, I think um, you know a lot of times people or churches. Um, they they like to get involved in more like a short-term missions way, like coming in for a Christmas event or like a week-long, you know, camp kind of thing. But the number one need of refugees in America is long-term relationships. So the biggest need I see is just one of of isolation um, due to maybe even lack of English, lack of resources, you know, different cultures. I mean, America has not been shy about our fears of Islam specifically, and so people feel really isolated. And um, so the biggest need is for long-term relational engagement. So, (laughs) like, being in a long-term relationship with refugees is is the number one need. And and how I came to experience this is I signed up through um, a refugee resettlement agency. And to be a volunteer there, you have to, like, sign a little form saying that you'll commit to three hours a week, you know. And that was awesome. It's a great way to just get in. And they assigned me to kind of be a family mentor for a recently arrived refugee family. And I just started showing up every week. And, you know, I thought I was going to teach English. And it very quickly became apparent that there were other needs that the family had. And um, and that just turned into, like, I've known this one particular family that I was stuck with for 11 years now. <laughs> and two of the girls have gotten married, and I've gone to their weddings, and they have kids now. Like, it's it's kind of amazing um, just how tied up my life has been with them. But, yeah, I, I usually recommend to people, instead of focusing on, you know, even, like, making – 
a welcome kit for refugee family, which is needed. Um, I think the bigger need would be to go through a refugee resettlement agency and ask if you can um, be assigned to work with a family and kind of try and be their cultural liaison at first and then just see where it goes from there. But most refugees are just hungry for a relationship, and the vast majority of them have never been inside an American home, ever. And that's just really sad. So I want to touch on something that you said in, at the beginning of the last question, because um, you do talk a bit about short-term missions in this book. Um, and I'd love, I'd love it if you'd explore those ideas a little bit more. Yeah, I think... <laughs> um, I think one thing that's come to my attention is the way I have viewed missions for myself in the past is that it was very much focused on me and what I could do, how I would feel afterwards, and honestly, you know, what was easiest for me. And sometimes I do feel like short-term missions is kind of all about um, – the do-gooder in that scenario, and sometimes the the long-term needs of the community that you're wanting to help are kind of forgotten. And so, you know, my take on short-term missions is there's probably already someone there in the community doing the work of the kingdom of God, and you can figure out how to help them. <laughs> and um, and that might be just supporting them if. If you do choose to raise money and go and travel, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I would now call those, you know, informational trips or vision trips. Like the sole purpose is to help the person who's going gain a, a greater awareness of different cultures and communities. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's just people who have been very quietly doing the work of God all over the place and – um, I don't know. It's just sort of a, a weird hubris to think an outsider could come in in one week and do it better <laughs> than the people who are already there. So finding ways to partner, I think, would be what long again a long term relational engagement and partnership um, with with different communities. I think would be definitely something worth pursuing. But um, I think it's harder to raise money when you're that nuanced about it, which is why that's not how a lot of churches choose to engage. So you write a lot in the beginning of the book about your past self who is very idealistic and really wanting to change the world for, for God. Um, if you could if you could speak back to her, what would what would you say? Yeah, I mean the book, my entire book was kind of written to her. <laughs> so um yeah, I mean I have a lot of compassion for my former self. And sometimes I miss, I miss the confidence, right? I just miss the idea that if you try really hard to follow God, then everything will work out eventually. Um, or, you know, if you try really hard, then the words that come out of your mouth will be, you know, just like the words of God. Um, you know, I just, the world has rid me of those kinds of confidences and, and I'm totally okay with that now, but I still miss it sometimes. Um, yeah, just kind of what I where I end up in the book is just saying there are so many injustices in the world. And in America specifically, there is so much inequality. It is staggering. 
But, and they all need to be addressed, and that is the work of God in the kingdom. But even if you do that, that's not going to make God love you anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the world um, the world needs people to be working towards justice in it, but it doesn't make God love you anymore. I guess would be something I would want to tell my, my younger self. I'm sure that it's hard to choose just, just one. So what are some of the greatest gifts that you've seen working with refugees? I think right well right now I'll just say it's Ramadan and so mm-hmm. like all my Muslim neighbors are observing the Ramadan fast and um I just I would even when I was going to Bible college and I knew some people who were doing Ramadan, I would just think to myself like you know, part of that's really cool. Like, they get to, they are showing their devotion to God. They do it in community. Like, the fast always ends in this big communal meal together. And it's, it's there's some really beautiful elements to Ramadan. At the same time, there's also these elements of religion that can be quite oppressive, right? So we are doing this in order to gain favor with God, to make God like us more, to somehow control our life and to make it come out in our favor, um, and I would feel sad for them. But being in a relationship with, with people from other religions has really shown a spotlight on how I am exactly the same way on the things <laughs> in my life that I do to try and control God and to make God love me more and to make myself appear holy and to, um, you know, build up my little tribe around me. Um, and so I think it's been such a gift to sort of shift my focus. Again, this kind of goes back to the missionary thing. So it's not like I want to convert my Muslim friends to become American Christians because we have the exact same problems, honestly. Like, we all have some lies that we believe about God. Um, But now I have this sort of confidence in we can come together, though, and I, I have a lot of confidence in God and the Holy Spirit and the life of Jesus which is so radical and so amazing and so liberating, you know, we can come together and pursue this liberating God. Um, so in a way, it's it's really helped me see both the good and the bad of growing up um, Christian. And, um, yeah, I think I have, I see way more commonalities than I, than I ever would have with, with my Muslim friends. So that's been, a, it's been a real gift. Um, how did so? How did you come up with your title? Is there a story behind that? Well, the story is that I okay. So I did not ever think I was going to be a writer. Writing was never part of my plan because I was going to be a missionary, right? And I used to read this specific website called um, Timothy McSweeney's Internet Tendency, a part of McSweeney's, and they had a column contest that they would run every year, and one year I was just like, you know what, my life is super interesting. I'm going to enter this, and I'm going to win it. I do not know why I had such confidence, (laughs) but I did. And so I was just like, yeah, I'm a fundamentalist Christian girl who's trying to convert these fundamentalist Muslim refugees in Portland. Like, that's so interesting, and I'll just write a column about it. And I decided to call it um, Assimilate or Go Home just because, that was uh, an expression I had heard within certain groups in regards to refugees. Um, 
and I just kind of wanted to talk about how I had seen that for refugees, that's kind of like the fundamental um, sadness in their story is many of them would love to go home, but they can't. Like, their home has been destroyed by war and trauma, and it's unsafe for them. And, um, you know, immigrants, you know, usually come here willingly, and refugees, um, you know, they wish they could go back. And so the title was, like, catchy, but also there's just an inherent sadness to it. And I think that's why I chose it. But, yeah, the cover is kind of political looking. At least it's like the colors of the American flag. And there's a part of me that's like, yeah, if if Donald Trump picks up this book and is intrigued by it and starts reading it and experiences a change of heart, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's eye-catching, I guess. So. so did the column go up at McSweeney's? It did, yeah. I ended up winning the contest. And so oh, like, I would say a third of my book, the content is from those columns, but it, they've been very heavily edited because I've changed a lot in the past four to five years. So <laughs> That's awesome. So let me ask you this. As as you're getting ready to, to release this book into the world, um, what is it that you're you're hoping to give your readers? What is it that you're hoping that they'll take away? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question, and it sometimes feels a little bit like a secondary one in that my my first goal was to just try to process my own life and try and be as honest as I could about it. And then I think my secondary goal in the back of my mind was just, you know, I grew up reading missionary biographies, as I've said, but I had never really read one from somebody who tried to do it for, like, seven to ten years and failed miserably. And so I was like, hey, I've never read this book, so I guess I'll write it. Like, here's a story (laughs) of somebody who tried it for a while and just it never happened. And kind of I wanted to write a lot about um, failure and what it means when our life doesn't turn out the way we thought it would, specifically when we're trying to do really good and big, important things for God. And then how do we... um, move forward after those things have been stripped down from us. So I, I guess I would I would say for people who who are similar to me in which they wanted to do big things for God, I would want this to be an encouragement um, that God still loves us even when we fail and even when we are um, privileged and do all these things wrong. And then for and then I guess for people who maybe have not had those same experiences and who maybe are struggling with how isolated they are from, you know, people experiencing poverty or refugees or people on the margins, um, I would like it to be an encouragement that, you know, the Bible says, like, that is where God is and that's where the blessings of the kingdom are, are with the people who are sick and sad and suffering. Um, And... You know, when Jesus announced his ministry, he said, I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor, to, um, you know, free those who have been chained and those who are oppressed and and those who are sick. So just kind of a gentle encouragement that those are the places we're supposed to go to with the most confidence um, because we know that God is already there and he's already working there. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Danielle. It's been such a delight. Yeah, thank you, Kara.